this is The, the Grimcast. Grimcast. Hi, Bree. Hi, Claire. Are you cold? I'm cold. My apartment doesn't have a lot of insulation. It has gorgeous floor-to-ceiling windows, but no insulation. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually cold here in L.A., too. Your atmospheric river. Atmospheric river. And I'm not kidding, guys. You're lucky I'm here because I was legitimately in a flash flood this week. Oh, my God. I really was. How far did the water get up to your car? I live up a hill and cars were sliding down, trash cans. I oh did everything wrong. Guess what? I'm an idiot. I did everything wrong. I went home and Googled, what do you do in a flash flood? And oh my God. five out of five things you're not supposed to do, I did. So I'm happy to just be here speaking to you all. <laughs> Wait, please do the service of telling everyone what you should do in a flash flood. I will. This will be the PSA. Basically, what they say is, turn around, don't drown. <laughs> I kept going. Well, but, okay, so this happened two years ago in one of our various storms out here. And same thing, like driving and all of a sudden it gets crazy and the water is coming up to the door. But your brain just glitches. Like you can't think in those circumstances where I'm just like, I guess I just ford the river. Like that is what we're doing. It's just the humanity of just like, get out. It's the fight or flight, right? It is. And you're actually supposed to get out of your car. Like if you're in a situation like that. I mean, mine was just a sudden deluge and like my road turned into a river. But, you know, if you're like in low, low level land and water is like quickly rising, you're actually supposed to get out of your car. And they say most drownings happen inside the car. I'm sure because you can't then open your door. Yes. But then... Like where we were on the like George Washington Bridge and then we were on the FDR. Oh, oh, you know, what? I remember you telling me this. Like none of the options are good in that case. But I now know like anytime one of these tragic storms now hits, whereas before I would judge people for like they told you not to go out and you went out. Now I'm like, oh, no, that is definitely what I would have done. I went out. I should not have gone out. I'm going to be honest. I had a pole dancing class. OK, well, <laughs> I'm out. judging you now. I went down into Hollywood, but I shouldn't have gone out. And I also learned this in my other PSA. Flood warning is different than flood watch. Flood warning is it's happening, so stay in your home. That's what I had that night, and I went out. Flood watch is like, be cool. Just like, be cool. They need to rebrand. That needs to be like <laughs> confusing. Flood happening. Flood now. <laughs> flood now. <laughs> flood <laughs> alarm. Not flood warning. Because warning, you know, as a kid, it's like you get a warning or like you get pulled over and you get a warning. That's what I thought. This is like flood now. Flood now. Yeah. We are glad you're here. We have a bonus episode, a very special bonus episode. I love these bonus episodes. I do too. They're like little tasty treats we get to add to the queue. We have Rick Marvin today who composed all of the music specifically for Grimm, for tense moments, for romantic moments. And also, it always was in the same world. He's so good. And guess what, guys? He also has created the music for our podcast. That's right. How lucky are we? I was going to do like a little ukulele for us, but Rick brought his magic to the music we have for this podcast, which is very playful, I think. Yeah, I love our music. We also never got to hang out with Rick while we were shooting the show, so... This is really lucky. This is going to be a fun one. I mean, I have like over 10 years of questions for Rick, so hopefully we, this won't turn into a three-parter. <laughs> Let's bring him on. Everybody, welcome Rick Marvin. 
Hi, Rick. Oh my God, Rick. Oh, ladies. Rick, you're delivering the brand. You're in a studio. <laughs> oh this my is gosh. so legit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so, so exciting to have you on. Oh, it's so nice to see you. I miss you guys so much. Oh my gosh, Rick. I haven't seen you in person in so many years. Yeah, it's probably been like, what, eight or nine years now? I think yeah. so. That's crazy. So, Rick, as we've been walking through all of these episodes again, the subject of the music and just the sound of Grimm keeps coming up over and over and over again. And we talk about like while we were in it and shooting, there's so much going on that you don't have time to really like kind of step back and consume the show as the viewers were. Sure. So we just would like you to take us through the entire process of how you kind of came on board and you had known Jim and Dave, right? You had worked with them before. I had just done a movie for Jim, Fork in the Road, which was a little independent thing that he wrote and filmed, and his kid Dylan was in it. And I think Silas was in that. And Silas, Silas right? Silas was in it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way I came into this was such an L.A. story, but my son, Matty, went to school with Callie Kauf, mm -hmm. and not only Callie Kauf, but Matty O'Hara. Wow. And they went through kindergarten through 12th grade together. So we were friends with the Kaufs and the O'Haras, and my wife was in book groups with Lynn and with Shanna, in fact, still with Shanna, and is, you know, very dear friends with both of them and all these families. It's led to a lot of people making connections and actually working together, which is how this happened. And John was working with you, right? John. O'Hara. John O'Hara was working with me sometimes. Let's see, I think he was still in school when I started. He was still at Berkeley and Valencia, and then he came out and did a couple of things for me. But then he got hooked up with Mike Post, who is a big TV composer, and he's still working for him. Yeah. Well. No, but we love them. And I listened to your podcast with Terrence, uh -huh. and God, it was really hard to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so gutted. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Even like, you know, when we were talking to him, it was so soon after that that it's unbelievable that we got the chance to even have that conversation. I and know. It's really crazy. Incredibly fortunate. Yeah. But um, you meet Jim and then how did Jim come to you with the concept of our show? Yeah. What were the initial conversations just establishing? Because, you know, the tone of the show, as we've been talking about, is so unique. Yeah. Well, I think Norberto was involved already and David was always there, of course. And as I recall, and forgive me in my late years, my memory isn't what it used to be, but I sort of recall that both David and Alberto had worked with other people and that was sort of going that direction. And I talked to Jim and I said, you know, I would love to do the show because Jim is like, you know, such an unbelievably research and smart guy. And, you know, I usually get lost whenever he talks about old movies or books or anything, but... <laughs> You know, I sort of had a glimpse or, you know, a memory of what Grimm is about. But then when he explained it to me, I said, this is right up my alley. And why is that? What about it was right up your alley? Well, I just sort of like a drama, not horror, but I just love that kind of music. I did a lot of shows like that previously, but were not quite as fantasy oriented. Uh -huh. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to try that out. And frankly, just to work again with him because we had such a good time on Fork in the Road. And, you know, Lynn was involved in that and, you know, Lynn's a kick and just love her. So basically, I said, if you need anything when you're putting the temp together, let me know. And the way I remember it was they got to the end of the show and Jim came to me and says, I just we can't find anything for the end of the pilot. And I said, OK, well, I think it was a Friday. And I said, well, I'll give you something tomorrow. Wow. Wow. I worked the next day and I did this demo over the end of the show and not exactly sure again how it all happened. But fortunately, they called and said, well, we'd like you to do the pilot. 
That was how it started. Wow. It's been so fun to rewatch. These are a lot of episodes I've never seen. And I've always felt this way about your work in our show, but watching it with this much distance and a changed perspective, it is such a major element of the show and the storytelling. And it is so subtle. I was just about to say, yeah. It really, really elevates our show. Like it grounds because, you know, we approached everything in reality, yeah. right? Like make it real, make it real, make it grounded. Right. Sometimes the volume gets turned up in a lot of these scenes and plots and storylines that if you don't have this anchor in the music, it could have just gone so far off the rails. I mean, I think most of our questions, you know, it's funny, a lot of them have been about wardrobe and music because I think the fans recognize what's going on, but it's almost like it's intangible, like the nuance of your music. There was one episode in particular just recently. Your music was such a standout in a particular episode that was actually really nice. Was it Game of Game Ogre? Yeah, it was yes. the one we interviewed Terrence for because I also remember there was one moment where there's nothing underneath. Like all of a sudden it gets really quiet and then things come in and just like, I guess your restraint mm. is so unbelievable. And especially, I think, in a lot of these network shows and shows these days where you get a composer who is just like, I'm going to bring in this flavor and this is the color that kind of goes throughout the whole show. And it's like, yes, it's important to kind of establish the sound, but you on this show are able to almost be the audience. Like there's this character that's kind of simmering along in the background. And so each beat has its own specific, like just little tweak and it's just like a magic trick. It's incredible. Well, we all know this was one in a lifetime show. We're never going to have the freedom and the support that we had on this show because of the people involved. And they gave me complete free reign, wow. which is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, when does a composer get, give me what you think? And that's what I did. And the way I compose, being an old jazzer, I improvised the picture. It's just one of those magical musical things that, I don't know what's going to happen while I start playing. I pick a sound and I just start playing along. And this was just an easy thing to figure out just because, as you say, Brie, it had to be serious. It had to be like overly serious almost uh -huh. Uh -huh. because it's sort of a cartoon. Some of the characters and stuff are cartoonish Yeah, and you have to make them serious. So once we found the main title, that just informed everything that theme and tremolo strings, you know, that was one of the things that you always go to. You go to the tremolo strings because it has tension. And by the end of six years, you know, telling my friends, I'll never use tremolo yeah. strings again. <laughs> <laughs> the theme too, like I remember us talking about this actually when the pilot came out, like it was so cool that we didn't have a theme song. We had this really dramatic kind of burst, like yeah. this was it and this was grim. Well, again, such support to just, we went through several versions of it. And I think it got to be just like every film score. The more you hear it, the more you like it. You know, it's like John Williams, like uh -huh. how can you think of Jaws or Star Wars without the music? It's because the repetition of thematic material and that theme was used throughout the episodes. And Lynn in particular always wanted every episode to end with that dun, 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 dun. Yeah. You know, I said, we can't do it every time. You know, that's sort of, <laughs> it's like really gimmicky, but you know, once in a while, We'd be in my studio. They would come over every week to preview the score. And I just knew that once in a while, I would throw that in at the end. And Lynn would just go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Woman knows what she wants. <laughs> but the theme, you know, now I'm like thinking about it. It's like, I love that it just drops in. 
And there's this pace of like hunting, being hunted yeah. or hunting. That's a train that's moving. Yeah. And it's already in motion when it starts, you know, and it's just really cool. And the ending with that kind of growl sound, yeah. was that something that you were just kind of tagging on at the end? That wasn't me. That was sound department. Uh, I remember when they changed it to, sorry, Claire, when they went from your face to my face, I was like, oh, this is where I've made it. Like, I'm not going to look like any more of a BA other than this moment with that growl sound. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to tip my hat to Stravinsky for that theme. That was right out of Rite of Spring. Everybody, you know, has their motivations. But that junk, 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 as you say, it was a train. And that's what we wanted to start out with. But, you know, every theme, every show had what we called the creature theme. Because every show, I wanted to be different. And unlike episodic television that I've done in the past, each one was a little movie. Mm -hmm. It was very cinematic. They wanted it big and cinematic. And they wanted themes. So whoever the vestment of the week was, I would come up with a new theme. And I wouldn't say that it's unbelievably rare, but that really worked. And then I had themes that were in the woods themes. You know, there was Silas chasing somebody in the woods. I forget which episode that was, but they went out in the house and they had some carnal activity out in the woods. Yes, with uh, Jamie Ray. Yeah. 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 Wolf love in the woods. Wolf love. <laughs> I was writing it and I said, this needs like a distorted guitar. And I don't play guitar. So Maddie, my son that grew up with the Calcine O'Hara's, was a guitar player. And I just said, can you play something? And he said, what do you want? And I said, well, look at this scene. He said, oh, that's gross. And, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> How old was he at the time? <laughs> he was, you know, 17 or 18. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> and I said, you know, something like Eddie Van Halen, you know, like distorted, kind of like just raw. And that was like a first take. And he just watched it and put it in there. And that was sort of an unusual cue for that. But my point is that every scene, there's the woods themes. Whenever Monroe and Nick or whoever would go into the woods to look for something, you'd always hear a Celeste, Harry Potter kind of magical theme that's going behind and sort of supporting the fairy taleness of the whole show. Mm. Yeah, there is this fairy taleness. You know, there is this like lightness a lot to certain pieces within the show. And yeah, when you start to think like, oh, when they go into the woods, I mean, I even think about when Rosalie is brewing concoctions and like the spice shop. I mean, there wasn't a lot of music in that, but I feel like there are even these sort of invisible moments where each character has their own kind of flavor when they come on screen and yeah. like these little worlds start to come into focus. Well, there was a spice shop theme. There was a spice shop thing. Yeah. Whenever you were doing your thing in the spice shop, there was similar music going yeah. on behind you <laughs> just to make the theme like, oh, we're back here. Yeah. Again. Huh. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The thing that I think everybody takes for granted, too, is that you're writing all this stuff for each episode and the timeline. Like, how does that work when you get a cut, like a finished cut that you are ready to track to? Like, what's the turnaround like that? And what is your workflow? It was pretty crazy. I had a week, basically, for every episode. Yeah. And the first two episodes, I think, I brought in a string quartet. And then I realized this is not going to work because... It's a lot more work to get a print out parts and get a recording session and da da da. So everything else I did myself. I played everything except for the guitar stuff. So we would spot and love the editors, by the way. Oh my gosh, what great editors we had mm -hmm. and support people and Julie Herlocker and uh -huh. just again, it was like going to work with your family all the time. I always loved being able to do ADR in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Which was very, very, very rare. But every time I stepped in, I remember like, oh my gosh, there's this whole breathing, living family unit here. 
that is so intimate. I mean, it is the show, you know? Yeah. I mean, editing, like, it's everything. Like, on the clock in the same but totally different way. Like a relay race, you know? It's like, okay, now you guys are on. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I spot, and then I'd have a week, and there's typically 35 or 38 minutes of music per episode. God. It was a lot. Every week you're doing that. Yeah, and I was doing other shows, too. So oh it was my God. really different than right now, of course. How do you fill yourself up, especially when you're doing multiple projects at the same time that are all, I would imagine, very different from each other. Like, how do you maintain the inspiration each week? Like, what do you do to stay full as an artist to be able to create something new? All based on fear, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like most artists. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't get this done, there's going to be a lot, you know, big problems. I don't stay up late. I don't work all night. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was my work time, and I had kids, and so I wanted to have a family life. So it was always, I was up at 5.30 or 5 and get to work. There was no way that I could have done all of that myself. So I had an assistant who would help me write by the name of Alan Darian. He sounds more like me than I do. <laughs> wow. We've been working together for 20 years, and we get together at the beginning of a show, and we just go through all the sample libraries and figure out, well, this is what we're going to use. We have the same setups and everything. And most of the time, I would give him some of the stuff that just takes a lot of time, like the fights. They were huge musically. Mm, yeah. And honestly, by the time it gets to episode 50 and 60, I don't want to do any more fights. <laughs> I didn't even think about that because it is like you're scoring a ballet at that point. Oh, yeah. Every punch, every throw. A lot of times music will just go playing underneath it. But the way that Jim wanted it was, you know, to score, like you say, like a ballet. So dynamic. Wow. Yeah. So I had some great helper. Yeah, you had a support team. And I really respect your boundaries with your work-life balance, you know, being a family man. Especially with, you could feasibly work all night, you know, like you could do that. You know, like I can't, once the set's closed, I can't go back. I mean, I could, if I was yeah. a lunatic, go like, you know, do a scene by myself on stage. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to go home. I mean, obviously you're married to a musician, Claire, but I would imagine that you kind of have to make a decision. Like what you said, my workday ends here. Well, I would just run out of gas too. Well, yeah, it's unsustainable. I mean, I just can't imagine like, yeah, 12 hours of creating stuff. That's just a lot. It's a lot. Like, <laughs> it's just... There's no choice. You just got to crank it out and get it done. So you are keys first, right? Yes. In the 80s, there was a thing about when, you know, the synthesizer came into it and how much you loved the synthesizer and like working with the synthesizer. And like, who were the people that you met on your kind of road that steered you in this direction? Because I can't imagine that when you started playing music, did you think that this was going to be the output or how did you get into the field? No, I had no idea I wanted to be a composer or even a studio musician because the first 10 years I got here, I got here in 78. I was a studio musician through early 90s. And again, it was based on fear because how am I going to support myself yeah. and have a family? I was a jazz player. I wanted to be Herbie. I wanted to be Chick Corea. I wanted to play with Chris Ely. You know, I wanted to do all this <laughs> stuff. And I went on the road for four or five years with various acts and I just hated it. I just hated it, hated it, hated it. It's not good for my marriage. It wasn't good for life. Saw a lot of great places, you know, as a young person. But I made a decision that I got to do something. And I'm sort of a good keyboard player. And I was really into electronics when they were starting out, you know, with the ARC 2600s and the mini moves and all that stuff. And 
I just got lucky that I went to Indiana University and in the music school, one of the guys who I knew there was working for a guy named Mike Post. And Mike Post had six or seven shows a week back then. Yeah. And there was a keyboard player named Ian Underwood who was in Frank Zappa's band and then ended up working for James Horner exclusively. And all of a sudden there was a slot. And my friend Jeff Gerson said, you know, I run with Mike every morning. Let me bring your name up with him. So long story short, I started working for Mike as one of his keyboard players. Wow. Which led to me being... Those days, synth stuff was just so, it's just exploding. So I got to work desperately seeking Susan with Tommy Newman and Dave Newman and Marie Shar. I did so many movies with Marie Shar, Fatal Attraction and Girls in the Mist, big movies. And you did, I saw Three Ninjas, which we just discovered. <laughs> I was like, that is some peak 80s. <laughs> like now watching it. Yeah. Because Calvin loves electronic music and anime and manga and like ninjas and Chris had remembered watching all of those movies and we put it on and it was just so fun to like be completely transported to exactly that place in time. Yeah. And so like when I was reading that about the 80s music and synthesizer and all this electronic stuff that was brand new and so it was just like in the front of everything at that time. It talks about so the anti-subtle. Yeah. <laughs> <was> so great. <laughs> Well, that came about because Mike Post came to me and said, you know, this whole studio musician stuff is going to end. Everybody's going to have their own studios. So you got to become a composer. And I said, well, wow. I, don't, wow. I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, you did why, but it's working out pretty good. And so I started writing for him. I think it was on Magnum PI and Hardcastle and McCormick. So I sort of just learned through him and he's been so supportive. And then, and then Three Ninjas came up and they wanted an orchestral sound, but they didn't have any money. So again, I played every note on that with samples. That's wild. Oh my gosh. But that was a little later, Claire. That was like 92. And who would have known that that thing, like every kid, my kids grew up during the 90s and all their friends love Three Ninjas. And even to this day, I play racquetball with some young 30-year-olds. And when they found out that I did Three Ninjas, they go, no way, hiya, hiya, hiya. <laughs> yes. Crazy. You know, all those stupid phrases from that movie. Remember them. Oh, yeah. You just never know what's going to make an impact. Sometimes it's just what seems like the most ridiculous thing at the time. I think that it has to be on my weekend movie night now. I got to revisit that. Oh, my God. My brothers are younger. They were kids in the 90s. And yeah, that was a peak 92. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, 92 was like throwing back a little homage to some early synthesizing sounds, you know. Absolutely. Teenage yeah. Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, like all that. I remember my dad was really into always kind of the latest, greatest tech. Like, he's not a musician at all, but there was that album, Celestial Soda Pop. Oh, yeah. Who did that? It was, uh, God, I can't believe I can't remember this guy's name anymore. But it was just a synthesizer, and this was this album of just computer noises. Uh-huh. And because it was such a novelty, I just remember him being so in awe of, like, you're programming this thing to make these sounds and just, like, how cool that was. It was a great time. Like what Vangelis was doing in Tangerine Dream, and they were getting into scoring. And it was sort of a time when the orchestral scores went away because all of a sudden, all this synth stuff was so popular with Chariots of Fire. And I remember like Jerry Goldsmith getting fired because they wanted a Tangerine Dream kind of score. And then this guy all of a sudden wrote some orchestral music named John Williams, and the whole thing went away. And it went back to orchestral music because Star Wars and Jaws. But that was a really cool time. And we did some cool movies with Tom Newman, too, which actually led to American Beauty, him doing with Alan Ball. And because I'd worked with Tom, 
Tom was really nice and got me in with Alan for Six Feet Under, which was one of the other great experiences. I still think that's my favorite series of all time. I cried so hard at the end of that series. Oh, yeah. I was like walking around my apartment, losing my shit. Like I watched that entire series. Did you? Yes, I did. Oh, my gosh. That's another show, too, like what you did with that, where everything was so spare and second by second and everything kind of just really beautifully placed. It's also like similar to Grimm because Six Feet Under is a real, because of Alan Ball, like it's got that kind of volume up. Like It can feel extreme in certain performance or subjects, you know, I mean, it's pretty outrageous at times. Yeah. But like what Claire's saying, the spareness and the groundingness of the score It just kept it in reality. And I mean, obviously, like the top of the top actors and performances on that show, but such an important restraint. I love that word, Claire, that you used. I mean, that takes balls to like not throttle it, especially when you're kind of really excited about the show, you know, like just to kind of like really titrate that sound, you know? Well, I've always said I've learned so much from Alan Ball and Tom Newman together because they did so many cool movies. There's such restraint. It's a great word. And Alan Ball was always saying during Six Feet Under is that we don't want to overdo the score. And I would be, in the very beginning, there'd be an emotional scene. And I'd say, okay, well, this is in the spotting. I'd say, okay, this is a good time for some score, right? And he said, why? We don't need it. It's on the screen. Ooh, that's good. You know? Oh, I like that. And then once in a while, he'd say, we need a little something here. But his whole point was, don't project what's happening on the screen in the story. And this is what Tom is so great at is you create an emotion, you create a vibe that enhances what's going on instead of hitting people in the head with, oh, this is a sad score. Right. Like, here's how to feel now. Yeah. He used to say that. Don't tell the audience how to feel. Just create an environment where they can feel more. You know, when I read scripts, I always don't tell Jim or David, but, you know, I cross out all the emotional stage direction. You know, I know why it has (laughs) to be on the page. I understand. But like, I have this really brat in me. and I'm like, don't tell me how to feel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll show you what you see. (laughs) That's a really good acting lesson, too, that you learn early on. Once you start, you know, appearing on television and watching your performances and going like, oh, God. You can lead an audience somewhere, but you cannot shove them into a place. Like you can express kind of what your point of view on a thing is, but it's so dissatisfying to have someone tell you how to consume. Right. Yeah. This actually lines up with, of course, there was a spice shop theme, but that's how good it was. I wasn't even aware of it. (laughs) You were like, this is just me in my head. (laughs) Now that I'm thinking about it, it was a feeling of coming home. Mm. Obviously, now I can remember it in my head. Because the spice shop was home. I mean, that was the Scooby Den. You know, and hearing the little bell go off on the front door and the little twinkle, twinkle of the score underneath when you enter the spice shop. Yeah. It's a very comforting home type theme. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to work really hard as a composer because it's not on the screen. But you guys, it was so easy. You are so good. And there's so many times the director or producer will say, okay, the music will fix this. And there was never that time. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> that's so nice to hear. <laughs> so nice to hear. That's so nice to know. <laughs> like, Claire, when you morph that first time in episode one, my wife just says, that was so cool. The way she sort of turned her head and shrugged her shoulder or whatever you do when you morph. Yeah. Oh, God. That's so nice. It was so cool. One of the coolest morphs of the whole series is that first one when she's walking in the hall. Oh, for sure. Like, whoa, what just happened? So disarming. And I'm not blow smoke. It was so easy to score the show because 
I didn't have to fix anything. It was all there. And I give that to the writers. I give it to the actors. I give it to everybody involved. I've never been on a show like this where from top to bottom, there's quality and people are responsible and they love what they're doing. It's so clear. Well, you know, I think it's really trust, right? Because even you saying how you've never had more freedom, you know, I mean, we all felt that way. I felt really trusted, like in my part of the machine, you know, I did feel like support. And I mean, that is intense to hear, but it really is quite rare because I want to go back to fear when you're making television, especially in the beginning days of a show. There's so many cooks in the kitchen and everyone's just trying to keep their job. And obviously everyone wants to make a good product, but you know, it gets clogged because there's a lot of fear and distrust, you know, in the process. I have to be heard. Let me make sure I'm heard. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's also, you think about the time. I mean, this show, it's over 10 years old now in terms of the first pilot. And to think about what we created at a time before there were these billion-dollar budgets, you know, and these streamer episodes, you know, for not a lot of money, we created something that was cinematic and timeless. And I think that there was no white knuckling on the steering wheel. And, you know, and even just your experience as the composer and us as actors and writers, producers, you know, it's just not a coincidence. You kind of have to have all of that to really sustain. And that really does start from the top. And even our people at NBC, our points at NBC were so supportive. I know, yeah. I know. We had an amazing team at NBC. And there was just a lot of faith in the process, it felt like. Well, it all starts out, I think, you know, from Sean and Todd, hands off, you know, basically. But not dispassionate. I mean, right. clear, passionate artists who have a point of view. But right. again, hands off in the way like, I trust you. You do your job. Yeah. I mean, composers are not invited to screenings, you know, parties at producers' houses. They're not invited. They're not invited to go to Portland to see the set and go to Sasha's benefit concert and... I think Chris played that night. Yeah. The children's hospital. and But I guess my point is, we're not really involved in that kind of stuff. But it was just indicative of how much trust there was. And, you know, you're part of this. Well, I do think Jim and Lynn Kauf know the value of investment on a personal level. So, like, bringing someone up and seeing the stages and coming to their home. And the human connection brings out the best in people. And they understand the value of that as a team and husband and wife. That's a very good point. And everybody, I've never known so many people involved in a show. So many good people, like fun, good, yeah. solid citizens. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rick, I mean, now you've moved on to a million other things, but do you get to play for fun anymore? Like, what's your input musically? You know, like, how do you receive the musical world outside of your composing for all these shows? Yeah, I've got a group of guys we get together. I mean, during the pandemic, we did it all remote. It's sort of like a free jazz kind of band. Wow. We released several CDs that were pretty much unlistenable. But um, <laughs> hey, it's just the act of doing. It's just the act of doing. Oh, for sure. It just kept us busy. That's so great. And then I write for a music production library and I'm always writing for them. And, you know, I did tender waltzes lately and now I'm on to action cues. And then wow, I'm really involved with my alma mater. I'm with Indiana's music school and really have invested a lot and got a scoring program going there in the last five years, which they didn't have previously. Oh, wow. 
God, how lucky for them, too, because, I mean, their performance wing has always been so great there. Oh, I'm glad you even noticed that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're in Bloomington, and people don't even know about this place. When I was in high school, they had this great scholarship, the Wells Scholarship. They had one for theater and for acting specifically, and, and musical theater, maybe. Yeah. And then I remember going to the campus because Chris was touring Bloomington. And just like what a huge respect and investment they have in the arts at that school. Oh, it's a hundred year old music school put on more operas than any production in the country and a ballet department. They had all these great classical chops, but they didn't have a scoring program. So I was asked to go back to do a master class five or six years ago and just talked to the dean. I said, this is unbelievable. You know, I grew up here. My, I went my wife here in 78, and she was a pianist and blah, blah, blah. But you can't say to an instrumentalist, okay, good luck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and wow. one of the few things you can do, orchestra work is really tough right now. Studio work is tough, but you can be a film composer or TV composer. There's so much content out there, and you got to have a scoring program. So to his credit, we have a great program going now, and I think there's 30 students there now, of Masters of Music and Visual Media Scoring, or I'm not sure what the title is. That sounds fancy enough, yeah. But then I bring them out here in the summer, and we do short films for Project Involved, which is part of LA Film Independent. And currently, we're working really hard on getting an LA campus for the scoring program. What an incredible gift. Like That is just incredible. You know, I've been doing this music thing for a long time and sitting with a 22 year old person who is from Zimbabwe who you know grew up in the church there and I have them in my studio all the time and it's just so rewarding to see young people and see where they want to be and hook them up with different contacts in LA and get them internships wow. and stuff like that is great. Well, gosh, just yet yeah, to be able to pay it forward in that way where you know you're making an actual difference and you're changing someone's life. I mean, it's really... Well, I remember what happened with me. I, mean, I worked at McDonald's and I mowed lawns when I got here and I just waited for something to happen. So <laughs> yeah. if I can avoid that for somebody, it's worthwhile. Yeah, it's just like opening one door. Yeah. I mean, that really is. Yeah. That's so hard, though. Like, yeah. That is the hardest part. It's already hard enough once you get here. It's already hard enough. Exactly. Yeah. It's a hand up in those kind of moments. Yeah. It's just so cool. Well, Rick, this was so cool. It's so great to see both of you. You too. This was a real treat, Rick. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. As I said, it was such a special time and I miss seeing you guys. And thank you for doing our music for this podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate it. <laughs> I got a call from Todd and he said, remember when we had breakfast and you said, you know, let me know if I can do anything for you. <laughs> I love Todd. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm calling you on this. And then I sent in some tracks and he sent me an email. He said, he's so great. He said, you are way better at your job than I am at mine. <laughs> Todd's the best. It would be weird if it wasn't you, though, Rick. I think it would feel weird if we didn't have your sound. Well, thank you for including me in this. Feel honored. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Rick. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Gosh, he's so good. We're really, really lucky we've had him. <laughs> We're really lucky. Like, he's really legit. And he's also just such a cool dude. Yeah. Well, Brie, it was lovely to see you as always. You too, sweetie. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Thank you for checking out our bonus episodes. It's like our B-side bonus tracks that we're putting out for you. And we'll talk to you next time. To be continued.